the face. Jack Blankenship. Does that ring a bell for anyone? Jack Blankenship received national media attention this past basketball season as being the University of Alabama, excuse me, college freshman that held up an enlarged photo of himself at basketball games. Now, many of you know that these uh, enlarged photos called fatheads of celebrities have become quite popular at sports events. They're held up behind the basketball goal as a distraction for those that are shooting free throws on the opposite team. Now, according to Jack Blankenship, he decided to throw a kink in the system by blowing up a picture of his own face uh, to get a laugh or two as an inside joke between him and some of his friends. Now, I'm not accusing Jack of any wrongdoing. I honestly think that he was just trying to receive a laugh or two. But the very idea of a fathead implies that some people are more valuable, some people are more important than others. And this is symptomatic of a much deeper issue that plagues people today, even in the church. We all have a tendency to be fatheads in our own minds. We all have a tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And Jonah was no different. This morning we will see from God's word that God's compassion for the lost should result in our compassion for the lost. This morning we finish a four-week series on the Old Testament book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, and if you don't, there should be some in the pew backs around you. Please take one and, and turn to Jonah chapter 4. We believe the words that we just sung this morning. We believe that Scripture is truth for us today. And so I would encourage you today, as any day, to follow along as we study God's Word together. Remember that Jonah is an Old Testament minor prophet tucked away amidst several other minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Uh, If you come across any of those short books, they're all short books, then you know you're in the neighborhood of Jonah. But before we look at Jonah chapter 4 this morning, we need to quickly catch ourselves up to speed on what has taken place in the life of Jonah up until now. Remember that Jonah received a call from God to arise, to get up, and to go to Nineveh, that city in Assyria, northeast of Israel. But instead of going to Nineveh, and instead of proclaiming the message that God had given him to cry out against the evil in that city, Jonah went west in the opposite direction. He went down to Joppa on the Mediterranean Sea, where he found a ship that was headed even farther west to Tarshish. So he paid the fare. And he got on board and he set sail. But God was not going to let Jonah run from his call on his life. And so God sends a mighty storm over the sea, so strong that the sailors on that ship are scared for their lives and they end up throwing Jonah overboard, left for dead. And so Jonah is in the Mediterranean Sea fighting for his life. He's got waves and billows crashing over him. He has seaweed wrapped around him. We read about these details in Jonah chapter 2. But God steps in again because God was not going to let Jonah run from his call, but God wasn't going to let Jonah die either. 
So God saves Jonah in the form of that great fish, that whale that swallowed Jonah just before he died by drowning. And in chapter 2, we read about Jonah's prayer. He recounted God's saving grace in his own life, in the middle of his own disobedience. And then we saw last week that Jonah received a second call, a second chance to obey the first call. It was like the first, arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. And so this time, Jonah went. And he went to Nineveh and began to preach. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And what happened? We saw last week that the people in Nineveh, from the king to the lowest servants, repented. They put on sackcloth and they fasted both signs of mourning and humble repentance before God. Now listen to God's response in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Another way to translate that is that God had compassion on them. God relented of the disaster. He saw their repentance. He heard their repentance. And he did not destroy them as he had promised. Now this was not uncommon in the Old Testament. And it's not uncommon today that God would make uh, a charge or a threat uh, to destroy, to judge. But it was always conditional on repentance. Now listen to these words from Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. This is what scripture says. It says, if at any time, this is God talking, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Now, God is a righteous judge, and the judgment of God is coming. One day we will all face the judgment of God, but God is also a compassionate God, and God would much rather see people repent than have to destroy them. And that's what we see taking place right here in Nineveh. But Jonah knew that God operated this way. And we'll see this morning in chapter 4 that this was Jonah's beef with God the whole time. So look with me now at Jonah chapter 4. And this morning we're going to break this up into two sections. We'll first look at verses 1 through 4 and then at verses 5 through 11. Jonah chapter 4 verses 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So God relents of the disaster, and Jonah is furious. He didn't want Nineveh, those pagan people in Assyria that worshiped false gods, those wicked people, 
those violent people, Israel's enemies, he did not want them to experience the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God that Israel had experienced, that Jonah had experienced by God. It's important for us to understand this morning that not only did God operate this way among pagan nations, but God operated this way among Israel as well, time and time and time again. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 13 through 15 describes how God has interacted with Israel, with his people in the Old Testament, the ones that he revealed himself to. And it reads this, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his, and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. In other words, God's compassion and God's patience and God's forgiveness had been experienced time and time and time again by his own people. But now, when the Assyrians, those wicked people, those pagan people, experience the same grace and the same kindness and the same patience of God, Jonah, God's prophet, is upset. Now, the same word appears in Jonah 3.10 twice and Jonah 4.1 once. And it's the word for evil. Now this sounds nitpicky, but follow along with me because this really draws something out of the passage. In Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, it says this. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. Same word for evil. God relented of the evil that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Chapter 4 verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly or it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. In other words, the tides have turned. Those pagan people, the Ninevites, who were characterized by evil, have now repented and turned away from their evil, and God's prophet, his messenger, the one that's been called to proclaim his truth, is now the only one left characterized by evil in this story. And so Jonah prays to God in verse two, verses 2 and 3. And basically, he tells God this. He says, God, I knew that you operated this way. I knew this was how you were. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were compassionate. I knew that you were slow to anger. I knew that you were abounding in love. And that is exactly why I didn't want to go to those Ninevites. Because I knew if they repented, you would have mercy on them. And you would look upon them with favor. And then in verse 4, what does God do? God asks Jonah a question. He says, do you do well to be angry? Another way to translate this is, are you right to be angry? Or is it right for you to be angry? Now, don't miss the irony here. Because it draws out a stark contrast. Remember Jonah in chapter 2? Remember Jonah having disobeyed the God, uh, disobeyed God and God's call in his life, and he's boarded the ship, and he's run from God's presence, and he's tossed overboard and left for dead, and God steps in, and God saves him from dying right in the middle of his disobedience, right in the middle of his defiance, right in the middle of his evil. 
God had showed tremendous grace, incredible grace on Jonah. And now God has shown that same grace to Nineveh. And Jonah's mad at God? And this is because Jonah was characterized by pride. This is because Jonah had become a fathead in his own mind. This is because Jonah was thinking much more of himself than he ought to. And are we really that different today? How often do we have those same thoughts and have that same attitude when we pass by homeless men and women on the streets of Birmingham at intersections around our city? Or how about when we encounter a same-gender couple holding hands in the local grocery store? Or how about when we hear about or pass by the Hoover Islamic Center or Homewood or Fairfield Mosque right here in Jefferson County? Now, I'm not talking about tolerance as it's used today. I'm not talking about support. I'm talking about the compassion of God as it has been made known in our own lives. Every single one of us is prone to think that somehow we are more deserving of God's saving grace in our lives than all of those people, when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. What does Scripture say? It says that our acts of righteousness are like filthy rags before God Almighty. And it is only by his saving grace that you and I are in this place today. It is only by his saving grace that you and I are made right with him and that we can worship him freely and that we can serve him day after day after day. We need to run from the self-centered bigotry that we so often succumb to, like Jonah, and run after God, allowing his character as it is revealed in his word to, to inform us and to change us, and to shape the way that we interact with people all around us on a daily basis. So let's look at the character of God. What is the character of God? It's revealed right here in verse 2 of chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my own country? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, or compassionate, same word, gracious God and compassionate, slow to anger, in abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now this exact phrasing, this exact description of God is used several times in Scripture, several times throughout the Old Testament. This is how God revealed himself in Exodus 34 when he revealed himself as Yahweh, the personal name of God, the same God that we serve today. He described himself this way in Nehemiah chapter 9. This is, how, this is the description of God that is used to describe how he relates to his people Israel. In Psalms 103 and in Psalm uh, 145, this is a declaration of praise for Yahweh. Same phraseology, gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And it's even used in Joel 2.13 to describe why or the reason or the grounds that Israel, God's people, should repent and turn back to him. In other words, because God is characterized this way, God's people can confidently and boldly turn from sin and turn back to him. Is not this what we read in the New Testament? If we confess our sins, he is gracious and just, and he'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is the God that we serve. So what does it mean that he's characterized in this way? 
The fact that God is described as a gracious God. We sung about this this morning. That he bestows his, frail, his favor for no deserved reason. Freely. Without cause. Nothing that anyone does causes them to earn God's favor. What does it mean that he's compassionate? That he's merciful? Well, this word is tied to the same word in the Hebrew for the word for womb. And so it uh, is similar to the love that a mother has for her child, her, her child from the time of conception, when that child is growing in the womb. What does it mean that God is slow to anger? This is a description of his patience. As we've already talked about this morning, God is a just God. He's a righteous ju- God. He is a judge But this word, slow to anger, describes God's own control over himself. He must judge because of who he is. But he would much rather see sinners repent. And so he's patient, so he tarries, so he waits. This is why 2 Peter 3, verse 9, reads this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The God that we serve is patient, and he desires to see people repent and turn back to him. And finally, God is characterized by steadfast love. He's abounding in steadfast love. It overflows. And this is a description of God's covenant love with his people. He is faithful to it. And Jonah knew this. And even though he had experienced God's faithful love, his steadfast love, he did not want Israel's enemies to experience that same sort of faithful love that they had. But like Jonah, our task is not to choose who gets to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our task is not to selectively choose those we think we deem are worthy of the message. We need to be reminded from God's word this morning that none of us are worthy of the message. Our task is to be faithful to the call, to spread the message at all costs, at all times, even when it's uncomfortable. God said this in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. These are the words of God. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's up to God to choose who hears and responds to the gospel message. It is our task to be faithful, to get on board that ship and to proclaim that truth to all people. So let's move along to Jonah chapter four, verses five through 11. We've seen in the first four verses that God is a compassionate God. He's merciful, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love. And at this point, we enter into the final episode and really the climax of the entire book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11, read this way. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat there under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might have shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So what happens? Jonah's upset. He goes outside the city into the desert, builds himself a booth or a shelter to give him some relief from the sun. And by the context of the story, this is most likely the hot season in Mesopotamia where the maximum daily temperature is usually about 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And so he gets some relief. And then God steps in again. Notice God's continued control throughout this story. And he appoints a plant to rise up, to grow up from the ground, just to give Jonah some relief from the heat, just to provide some shade. God used a great fish in 117. Now he uses a plant. And then we see that he uses a worm. He can use something as large and significant as a well and something as small and seemingly insignificant as a worm. And so the next day, Jonah wakes up and the plant has withered because God appointed a worm. Not only did God appoint a worm to take the plant away, but he also appointed a scorching east wind, a hot, dry desert wind to come across and to remind Jonah of the heat. And the only way, the only way that Jonah presumably is going to have any relief from this heat is to go back into Nineveh, which he shows absolutely no sign of doing. Now notice the contrast here again. In chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah was displeased exceedingly and was angry with God for showing grace on the Ninevites. Chapter 4, verse 6. God appoints some shade, a shade tree to come up over Jonah. And what is Jonah's response? He was exceedingly glad or very happy. Once again, Jonah is the recipient of God's grace. And he's happy about it. Somehow he thinks that he deserves, that he is worthy of a shade tree on a hot day. And the Ninevites, a whole city, is not worthy of God's compassion. He would rather them be destroyed. Now Jonah, that is tremendously arrogant. We cannot help but see Jonah's pride throughout this story. That is crazy. You're more worthy of a shade tree, some relief on a hot day, than an entire city is of God's patience? But we have to ask ourselves again, is our attitude really that far off? We encounter people every single day 
that do not know God's saving grace, and they are headed down a road of judgment, of eternal judgment, of eternal separation from a holy and righteous and good God. Yet I'm afraid many of us would be more upset this morning if the sanctuary's air conditioning wasn't working than if a man or woman, boy or girl, walked out of here unforgiven. We need to draw near to God and be reminded of His compassion, be reminded of His grace, be reminded of His goodness and His forgiveness and the need for all people to hear that and to respond to that. Because He is about that, you and I must be about spreading that. Our task is to spread His fame because we serve a God who is compassionate, who is merciful, who is loving, who is patient, and because he is compassionate, you and I must be compassionate on the lost, on the hurting, on sinners, on those that appear unlovable to us. Now in Jonah chapter 4, God is orchestrating these events to make his point, to make his final point, to drive home his point. And this is why God appoints the plant, and this is also why God appoints the worm. God is in control, and then he asked the question, the same question that he asked earlier. He said, do you do well to be angry, or are you right, Jonah, to be angry? And God knew how Jonah would respond. How did Jonah respond? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. In other words, God, I have every right to be angry. And I wish you'd just take my life from me again. Remember chapter 2? His life was fainting away and God raised up his life from the pit. Now God saves others and Jonah is ready to die. Wishes God would take his own life. And then in verses 10 and 11, God makes his final point, his ultimate point. Look at it again with me. It says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant. Now get this. The word pity here in 10 and 11 can also be translated compassion. You have compassion on it. You pity the plant or you have compassion on the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity or have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? This is a reference to the population of Nineveh, over 120,000 people. This was a large city in that day that do not know the right hand from the left. Now, this is not implying that they didn't have a good education system. That they, this is not implying that they weren't intelligent people. This is an idiom referencing their spiritual and moral unawareness. They did not know God. And they needed to hear about God. So then God makes this point. You have compassion on a plant, which you did nothing to create. You did absolutely nothing to maintain. You have more compassion on that plant than you do an entire city. And God said, should I not have care and compassion and concern for those people, those people that I created? And just like you parents have care and compassion and concern and love for your children, it makes sense for God to have care and compassion and concern for those that he has created. And as I was reading and studying specifically 
right in the middle, no lie, those last two verses this past Monday morning, I received a text message from my mother. And I looked down, I glanced down, and I noticed immediately that that same text message also went to my older brother and my younger sister. And this is what it said. This is all it said. It said, Hershey died in his sleep last night. Now, judging by the context, many of you can, could probably assume that Hershey was my uh, parents' family pet. He was their chocolate lab um, that they had had since I was about 13 years ago, uh, 13 years old, uh, that we received for Christmas uh, one year. And even though Hershey had lived a full life, and he had experienced numerous health problems, declining health in the last few months. And even though for the past eight or nine years, I really only had occasional interaction with Hershey, as soon as I read those words, I had that sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. Even though Hershey died peacefully in his sleep, it still hurt me to hear it. And then all of a sudden, it hit me just like a ton of bricks that I show more, compa- more compassion and concern and pity and care over a dying dog than I often do for people that are dying and headed down a road of destruction that are outside the saving grace of God that do not even know the saving grace of God. And that is not a statement about pets and the necessary emotions that are wrapped up in that. That's a statement about our lack of concern, our lack of compassion, our lack of mercy, our lack of love for the loss that God has on all people. We serve a God who is gracious. We serve a God who is compassionate. We serve a God who is patient, who is abounding in steadfast love. And it is time for us to stop being so consumed with ourselves that we ignore those that are lost and hurting around us. Those that are outside the church, outside the will of God. It is time that we internalize the truths of First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter five, verses sixteen through twenty-one, which reads this way. Second Corinthians chapter five, verses sixteen through twenty-one. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You and I, as the people of God who have responded to the saving grace of God, have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now God has entrusted to us, the church, his people, the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are heralds. We are representatives of the gospel. And it is time for us to reach out with the same care and the same urgency and the same compassion and the same forgiveness and the same patience and the same concern that God has for people, all people. We can no longer 
look on some as unlikely candidates for hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of us are likely candidates to hear and respond to the good news of salvation in Christ. So we must reach out to the lost. Our practices must match our confessions. As we heard it put last week, our living must testify to our believing. Do you know this God? Do you know this one who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Let's pray. Father, it's only by your grace and your goodness to each of us that we are able to stand before you this morning, that we are able to sing praises to you this morning, that we have air to breathe this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, you have been kind to us beyond, far, far beyond what we deserve. And we acknowledge that this morning. We acknowledge that like Jonah so often, we think of ourselves as much more highly than we ought. Lord, help us to see ourselves and all people in light of the way that you see us. Lord, may we be faithful ambassadors of the message that you have entrusted to us. May we go forth from this place with the compassion and the mercy and the love that, that you have shown us. And as we draw near to you and as we continue to seek you in your word, May we become more like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.